Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I just want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters out there and the uh, Anchor supporters. You guys are the best. Uh, If you want to support this podcast, uh, a great way to do that would be to go leave an Apple review. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, leave a comment. That would be huge. Please go do that right now. Uh, but today I'm I'm really excited because we have another special guest on. I have with me Dr. Chris Bolt, and he is a uh, professor of apologetics at Level College. I believe that's in New Orleans, no, New Orleans for for all of you down there. And then he's also a pastor teacher at Elk Elkton ba- Baptist Church. And I'm reading off of his book here, "The World in His Hands: uh, A Christian Account of Scientific Law and Its Antithetical Competitors." Chris is the man. So let me stop talking about him and get him in here. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Parker. Yeah, this is huge. Uh, we did we did an interview, my brother and I, on uh, the Sons of Thunder back in the day, but it's cool to, to get you here by myself. Um, I want to talk about the transcendental argument for God and natural theology. And I, as I study Van Til and transcendental arguments, I kind of thought, it seems a little bit like natural theology. I've heard I've heard people uh, make that argument before, and Reformed folks don't really like that. I think I've heard you talk about it too. So I thought, man, who better to to clear this up for us than you? Uh, can we just maybe actually? How do you get into uh, transcendental arguments and, and Van Til? That w- that would be interesting to hear about first. Yeah. Uh, do you mean historically or in terms of principle? Um, let's go historically. Okay. So uh, how did I get into the transcendental argument? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, please. Yeah. um, So I began to really take my faith seriously and dig into my faith right around the college years. Mm -hmm. And so I began uh, studying apologetics sort of accidentally. So I had heard about C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, Mm -hmm. and I asked for it as a Christmas gift, and I received it on Christmas Eve. And uh, that book, I, I stayed up all night that that night and read it through wow. in, in one sitting because I couldn't I couldn't put it down. It was uh, scratching where I itched, as they say. Yeah. Um, I had never seen anything like that before or read anything like that before, although I had had many thoughts along those lines. Not that I'm so smart that I was thinking through natural theology mm-hmm. or something to that effect. But in terms of I had had my own questions and, and was thinking, you know, how does my faith work out in terms of my reasoning and thinking about these various things? So uh, that's kind of where I started. And then I began to learn more about apologetics. There was a mentor uh, at my church who was a professor of apologetics at uh, Liberty uh, Divinity School. Okay. And uh, he pointed me in the right directions and everything. I got a hold of the Handbook of Christian Apologetics by uh, Teselli and uh, Kreeft. Yeah. And and I read read that through. That was a difficult book uh, at the time, for sure, because it's mostly it just mostly consists of syllogisms and explanations, <laughs> of objections. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so fairly dry reading for most, but it was fascinating uh, to me. And then uh, I would stay up at night thinking about those sorts of things. 
Uh, and then I, I cut my teeth really though on William Lane Craig, reading his online okay. debates at Leadership U uh, back in the day. It, hmm. That's the website that those appeared on. And so uh, I began to interact on online forums with atheists and other unbelievers. And I tried to implement some of the things that I had learned mm -hmm. from the more classical or evidentialist apologetic schools. And uh, it wasn't working. And at the same time, I began to study a little bit of reform thought a bit more. And I discovered uh, the thinking of Greg Bonson and Cornelius Van Til. I believe that was through the Center of Reformed Theology and Apologetics. I don't even know if that site still exists. Hmm. And uh, I didn't get it for quite a while. And then one day it was like the light bulb came on. And I, I realized what these guys were arguing was, was that we don't start with um, some sort of would-be autonomous principle in our reasoning. We're not assuming um, all of these other schemes and ways of thinking. We are beginning uh, upon the basis of the Word of God and the Christian worldview in order to make our arguments and to think through why it is that we believe. And so I believe that this is broadly construed in the faith-seeking understanding um, category of, of thinking and apologetics. And so that led me down the road then to biblical arguments for transcendental reasoning, as well as the historical arguments in terms of uh, philosophical reasoning. And uh, that's kind of how I got into it, I guess. Man, that's awesome. Did, did uh, you said you were, you're getting into some reform thought. Did you come to reform theology through apologetics or did, was that hand in hand or did one come prior to the other? I think I would say it's hand, it was hand in hand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That, that's probably that's uh, really similar to my story as well. And, and I lived with uh, a skeptic, one of my best friends, and he would just keep on asking me, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe this? And I was like, dude, I don't have any good answers. I don't know what I believe or why I believe it and started to get into this. And then, uh, yeah, I got got into Bonson, Van Til, like that's always how it goes. And uh, yeah, here we are today. So I, I haven't done a podcast episode just on presuppositional apologetics or transcendental arguments um, been, been going in deep. So I don't, I don't want to give just a, a broad overview. I want to go in deep on like transcendental arguments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've used that word a lot in my podcasts, uh, just kind of assuming a lot of people get it, but uh, can you break that down for us? Like what, what is a transcendental argument? Yeah. Transcendental argument is an argument that roughly takes a form uh, where um, X is a necessary precondition of the possibility of why, mm -hmm. so that if someone affirms uh, Y, then it's going to necessitate that they also believe X. And so if someone does not believe X, you might use a transcendental argument to try to persuade them in virtue of Y that actually they do uh, tacitly accept X as well. And so you want to bring that that belief or that starting point or that uh, mm -hmm. axiom or whatever, you want to bring that uh, to the forefront of, of their thought, right? Yeah. And so uh, there are different ways that we can approach these. There, there's been a lot of debate about what exactly the form of these arguments is. Mm -hmm. um, transcendental arguments, I think, uh, if you want me to briefly trace kind of a history the way I think about these. Yeah, let's okay. do it. So if you go back to, say, Aristotle, mm -hmm. you have him arguing regarding logic and he might say something to the effect of, well, in order to deny or reject classical logic or the classical laws of logic. So we're thinking of things like the law of identity, A equals mm -hmm. A, uh, the law of excluded middle. So it's A or not A or the law of non-contradiction, which is uh, not 
A and not A at the same mm-hmm. time in the same respect. And so if you want to reject, for example, those three major laws in classical logic, you would actually have to use logic right. to deny logic, right? Mm-hmm. And so by way of affirmation or denial of logic, you're actually, uh, in principle, affirming logic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing then when it comes to, for example, Rene Descartes in the modern era, uh, you have him using an argument that loosely takes on a transcendental form. So uh, famously, he said, I think, therefore I am. But mm-hmm. really what Descartes was getting at was uh, he's trying to find certainty just in terms of a priori reasoning. He was a rationalist. Mm-hmm. And so he's thinking through these things. What can I be certain of? How can I remove all doubt? And as he's thinking about these things, he says, well, if I think that I don't exist, that's not going to work out, right? <laughs> Even <laughs> logically speaking, whatever. He mm-hmm. he says, for me to deny that I exist, I would have to exist. For me to deny that I'm thinking, I would have to uh, be thinking. Now, there are some objections we can make even to this, but I think that it's a helpful illustration of what just a basic uh, form of a transcendental argument might look like. Again, uh, it it takes on this this idea of, uh, in affirming or denying something, I'm actually showing that some other precondition is necessary. So what's necessary to be able to think? Uh, well, you say I am a thinking thing. You know, what's necessary to be able to deny one's existence? Well, you, you have to be able to say I exist again. There's some more highfalutin philosophy where you could probably get into the details of that and and disagree with that. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche actually does so with regard to uh, Descartes. But yeah. Uh, we'll move on. So you get into more development of transcendental reasoning. Famously, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, he says that he was awoken from his dogmatic slumber by my favorite philosopher, David Hume. Uh, when I say that, people say, why is David Hume your favorite philosopher? He's a skeptic of the Christian faith. This is horrible. We have a Christian pastor. You know, I use David Hume in the sense of not that I'm um, appropriating his insights for a positive use yeah. of his program, but rather David Hume, I think, shows us the futility of unbelieving thought. And so that's the way that I uh, use David Hume. Anyway, Immanuel Kant's working off him, comes up with the phenomenal the numinal scheme and these sorts of things. But Kant basically makes all knowledge to turn on the subject of knowledge. This is a Copernican revolution in the philosophical world. Uh, and self-proclaimed, self-proclaimed yes. Kant, Yes, yes. So I'm working off their uh, ideas here, right? Mm-hmm. Their ideology, how they approach these things. And so Kant said that uh, we bring categories to our experiences, and that's how we're able to make sense of them. I believe it was Ron Nash who uses the illustration of a sausage-making machine, where you put all of this undefined meat into one side of the machine and then you crank this thing mm-hmm. and it it pushes out the sausage in the links or whatever uh, in the rolls whatever you call it on the other side uh, and so it's got order now and so what we're doing when we come to our experience we're bringing categories like causality or causation we're bringing that to just the raw data of our experience in order to make sense of it mm-hmm. and if you deny these categories well, then you're not able to make sense of anything. And so this is the transcendental method 
of Immanuel Kant. There's some debate, even among those who are experts in the field of transcendental arguments uh, in the secular in the secular uh, uh, world, there are some who debate whether or not this is actually a transcendental argument or not um, in the way that later um, understandings of this argument come about. So you've got other guys later on down the road who deal with transcendental arguments. Uh, for example, you've got P.F. Strawson mm -hmm. uh, who argues with them. Now we're getting into answers for the global skeptic. We're trying to prove things like the existence of the external world. Uh, we're trying to answer these, these wild skeptical scenarios uh, in virtue of a transcendental argument showing that even in order to hold such and such skeptical belief, you have to actually affirm these other beliefs as preconditions for the possibility of, of those uh, things being the case. So P.F. Strawson, A.C. Grayling deals a, a bit with mm -hmm. uh, transcendental arguments. Um, you, in the Christian world, well, you've got Robert Stern uh, who deals with them as well. Uh, in the Christian world, you get into even a guy like uh, Alvin Plantinga, hmm. who is using uh, transcendental arguments. He presents transcendental arguments. I know that in the, the Five Views book on apologetics, William Lane Craig notes this, yeah. that, that we should actually rely upon these uh, transcendental arguments. Tyler McNabb is uh, a man to watch right now yeah. in the world of philosophy. Very, very bright philosopher, uh, has all of the scholarly credentials, but he is influenced in his background. If you read between the lines of the things he's writing. He is influenced by Greg Bonson and the Vantillians, mm -hmm. uh, even though he's taking a more Plantingian approach now. Uh, and he offers actually a transcendental argument in one of his newer books. Yeah, um, he's, he's been on. We, we've talked about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. excellent. Excellent. Yeah, great. yeah. I'll have to go back and watch that because yeah. listen to that because that's uh, I'm very interested in the things he has to say. Yeah. And he's, he's trying to do the broader project as well of applying what Plantinga has said to you know world religions and whatnot now i've intentionally left out van till and bonson and others who use this type of methodology yeah. but i've said enough <laughs> no that that's so good uh just just to clarify um i i've i i love this this line of thought i uh, try to use it in all my papers I try to jam as much van till as i can and all of my ted's professors they uh sometimes are not very appreciative of that but uh that's where that's who i am uh when you this idea of tacit knowledge, um, this has been kind of contentious. It's been contentious in the, in the literature, in popular debates and stuff. So uh, if we have we have X, that's this incontrovertible or uh, um, un, uncontrovertible, something you can't deny, uh, thing of human experience, X, whatever it is, our reasoning, let's say. And, and uh, you know, we, we look to find that the necessary preconditions that, that undergird that so that if you're reasoning this, next thing has to be true. Uh, why? Whatever. So um, when you say, look, uh, necessary precondition of X is Y, does that mean that they tacitly know that or just that that is something they ought to know? Uh, I just wanted to flesh out like the the knowledge question. Um, maybe, maybe Y is undergirding X, but they don't actually know it. Or in affirming X, are they tacitly actually affirming that they do know Y? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I do want to point out, you you actually did reverse the variables in that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> At least from the way that I had said it. Okay, my bad, my bad. Yours is fine, obviously. But uh, so the the undeniable belief or, or whatever, um, I think you proposed as X, which I, I said it was Y. So it doesn't matter, though. Uh, so we take this general principle or this operative feature 
of one's experience. Mm -hmm. And there's always something there, right? This doesn't have to be something that cannot be doubted. It's just something that the individual considers, you know, you know they, they don't doubt it. Yeah, it's uh, a given, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And so that can be something as radical as uh, I doubt everything. You know, there's a claim. Okay, let's grab it and let's see what the necessary preconditions of, of holding to that are. Yeah. Now, I think there are lots of different routes we could take to answer your question on mm-hmm. a local level yeah. uh, with regard to philosophical reasoning and some of these, I call them localized uh, transcendental arguments or TAs that I've mm-hmm. alluded to with the history of philosophy. And so I actually want to suck this one back into the, yeah, the, the Christian use of these in the Vantillian scheme, because um, most famously in within Vantillianism, we're working off of this idea that everyone knows God exists, mm-hmm. right? And that is the necessary precondition of intelligibility. Yeah. And so in that instance, uh, what we would say is this is an actual knowledge that a person has. Now, I don't know that I want to get into the weeds of this or that I'm actually committed to one of these or that I have to be committed, rather. Yeah. Uh, whether we're talking about a personal type knowledge, whether we're talking about knowledge in the terms of justified true belief, or whether we're talking about knowledge in terms of warranted true belief or some mixture thereof. Yeah. Okay. But what we do want to say, we want to affirm on the basis of scripture, actually, that, that all know God, right. Mm -hmm. And that they suppress this knowledge, this truth in unrighteousness. And so what you actually get, I think, in answer to your question is a a first order belief. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, uh, you know, God exists. Okay. There's your first order belief. And then what develops through another motivation, some other motive, what develops is a second order belief. Um, I, I do not believe God exists. So, so there's a, there's a suppression of the first order belief. Now, this is not, even this concept, is not merely found within Christian theology. Mm-hmm. This was the subject of Greg Bonson's dissertation, yeah. uh, his PhD in philosophy. On self-deception, and, right? Yes, yes. And there, there's a secular philosopher, and I cannot recall his name right now, mm-hmm. who, who wrote an article probably five years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Actually, it was more than that, I remember. But um, he goes through and and explains this, you know, one of the most famous examples is cancer patients who are told, you know, you have cancer. And so they believe I have cancer, but then because of all of the things, all the baggage that comes along with that emotionally or whatever, and this is not a a criticism, obviously, uh, they'll, they'll come to deceive themselves. They will say, um, it is not the case that I have cancer and it's Mm -hmm. used to, to deny that first order, uh, belief through this other uh, motivation or, or motive. Um, so the, these examples of self-deception, the principle of self-deception exist even in secular philosophy. So what we're doing, I think, with the transcendental scheme with Vantillianism is taking what Scripture teaches us. Scripture certainly talks about self-deception. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it talks about this even in the case of the, of the believer in some instances, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we deceive ourselves. Uh, it'll talk about. Yeah, Paul warns us uh, in, to think of ourselves with sober judgment, not not to be puffed up. Yeah, to th- think of ourselves rightly. And if if Christians didn't have a problem with that, he wouldn't need to say that. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, uh, what we're doing, I believe, is we're fleshing out in philosophical terms what Scripture gives us in scriptural or theological terms. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so we do want to affirm that. And that's, uh, I, I always thought Romans 1 was pretty clear on this, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are like, no, that, that refers to a, uh, a past uh, humanity. That refers to our ancestors. They knew the truth and they, they switched it for a lie. And now we can genuinely not know God today. And that's mm. not what we're trying to get at, right? We're trying to say, no, if you know things about the world, then you're tacitly knowing things about the, the maker of the world. Right, right. And I guess to tie together the things that we've already talked about and mm-hmm. what you were getting at there, um, that knowledge of God mm-hmm. and then the suppression of that truth is what we want to reveal through the use of the transcendental argument where we say, okay, you affirm or deny whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so let me show you how that demonstrates that you actually do know God, that you're created in his image, that this is his world and God exists, right? Yeah. And so Romans 1, I do have it open here, of course. Uh, <laughs> this is the go-to text, right? For, yeah, right? for the wrath of God, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so it goes on along those lines. And that's the premise for the remainder of the book of Romans. Paul mm-hmm. is basing his argument for our human responsibility on that passage. Uh, we do, in fact, have a, a knowledge of God, a natural knowledge of God. And uh, and that leads to actually it's sufficient to condemn us mm-hmm. uh, in, in God's sight. Right. And yeah. that's why we need the gospel, uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, for our sins. So I do mm-hmm. think that Romans one is actually an instance in scripture of a transcendental styled argument because mm-hmm. you have the utility of unbelieving thought that's spelled out there. Yeah. Well, and this also brings us to uh, the the rest of the topic for our conversation, though. I don't want to jump ahead too, too quickly, but God's been revealed in the things that have been made. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that produces knowledge in people. And so this gets to our conversation of is a transcendental, is the transcendental argument, uh, whether you can even say that uh, natural theology or not. So um, yeah, maybe let's, let's tie up the conversation. I'm I'm a little distracted here because there's this giant picture of D.A. Carson People are walking. I guess he's doing a conference here, Ted. So I just see Carson's face just coming across the, the top here. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's wrap up the – not wrap up, but let's, like, uh, clarify, uh, tag, and, and transcendental arguments, and then we can go on to natural theology. All right. Do you, do you feel good about, about the what we've covered so far? Should we oh, – sure. Yeah. No, I think that's a great introduction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you did it. So, yeah, you should think it's great. Um, <laughs> so we have we have this transcendental argument. Um we we believe that it's it's scripture, uh, it's it's found in scripture, and that because you have this knowledge of God, you can be held accountable for the knowledge which you have. Just to to clarify, do do you think that people are running around saying like I do know God, but I'm going to pretend like I don't know God, or is self deception more uh, 
nuanced yeah, than that. I mean, I think it can be an outright lie, but okay. I don't think that's necessary. No. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's worthwhile making that point to unbelievers as well to right. say, look, I'm not saying that you are running around, you know, <laughs> with this sort of thing, but that's something that you can kind of pry into as well, because if we're talking about evidences for God, which yeah. I believe everything is evidence for God, right. I also think that there are experiential factors that could help to open up, say, an atheist's eyes to the fact that, oh, I really am suppressing this truth that I know in my heart of hearts. Right. Yeah. I, I, I love making this point because it's it's not like um, maybe there are some people like this, but it's not like they when people say I genuinely don't believe. Uh, you know, just, you, you need to take my word on that. I don't believe in God. And it's, we're, we're not saying, yes, yes, you do. Uh, you, you do. And you have the same belief that I do same manner. You're holding it in the same way, but now you're just flat out lying to me. But when, when you deceive yourself, there's some complicated psychology right. going on there That's where, right. you know, I can deceive myself, tell myself I'm, I'm super handsome. And I tell myself that lie forever until someone shows me the evidence that, yeah, I actually know I'm not as handsome as I think, uh, you know, it's a it's a joke, but that's that's more what we're getting on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We, need, we need to move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, okay, so then moving into natural theology, can you just uh, define that for us? What is natural theology? Yeah, I think I would divide natural theology up, and and I'll be forthright that I'm borrowing much of this from Michael Suddath and the way that he divided it yeah. in his book, uh, the Reformed Objection to Natural. Theology. Uh, there are others who have done likewise, even in terms of uh, the the writers who wrote in Latin, you know, with uh, the different types of knowledge of God and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think in general, we can we can divide natural theology into the natural knowledge of God mm-hmm. and then into theistic arguments. And so natural knowledge of God involves things like uh, perhaps an innate knowledge of God or the knowledge of God that is derived in some form or fashion from the things which have been made, which we read about in Romans 1, right? I mean, it says that we perceive God in the things that have been made. Um, You know, just the fact that we're created in the image of God in and of itself. I mean, we ourselves are creation. This is a quiz question for some of my students sometimes. Mm. I, I, you know, say, is this the revel? Are we the revelation of God? And everyone thinks automatically this is prosperity theology or something, you know, <laughs> or the divine or something like that. Right. But we really are. We're the revelation of God as well. We're created yeah. in his image. We're part of the creation. We're not the creator. Yeah. Um, so we know God by these means, right, of natural uh, theology, natural knowledge of God is what we're talking about there. And there are many debates within that category, and we're revisiting some of these debates now in the scholarship that's out there, and that's fine. Again, I don't want to commit myself to one or another uh, just for the purposes of of brevity here. So moving into then the theistic arguments, the other type of natural uh, theology, you have natural theology that can be used in a dogmatic sense, meaning this, that you're already believing in the existence and the nature of the Christian God. You're already a Christian. You already follow the Christian worldview, or perhaps you're outside of it, but you're looking at this this history of theology that we have, right? Historical theology. And so in natural theology used in a dogmatic sense, what we're doing is we're building upon that natural knowledge of God. And so when we come to creation, there are inferences we can draw 
And there are arguments we can make, even formalized syllogistic arguments that we could make that, that appear to show that this or that attribute of the God of the Bible is, is correct or true yeah. or, or whatever, right? And we can, we can draw that out even more if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. The same thing with regard to biblical revelation, though. I mean, we can use it. It's, it's kind of uh, uh, messing the term up a little bit here, right, to talk of natural theology with regard to the biblical revelation. But we do talk about uh, various attributes of God and, and things that must be true as following from Scripture through yeah. the use of our reasoning, right? So we have faith seeking understanding. We have reason that's based upon uh, faith. And so we can actually know what I'm getting at is we can know things about God through our reasoning mm-hmm. insofar as it's based upon a proper faith. And understanding, right? And this, would, this would be more. Um, I, I forgot the word that maybe you already used it. I forgot what Seth uses, but it's. I always think of it as like a confirming way. You're saying, yeah, here's yeah. what here's what God says, and I'm going to go, and I see it's confirmed in. But but I didn't just build it up out of natural. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the third way that it would be used. Then is to is to more clearly um, explain. Okay. And, and to articulate what it is that we believe about God based on his general revelation in creation and also based upon the Bible. Okay. Um, again, so that's different. Wanna, that, that's different than dogmatic, you'd say? No, I, I say that is dogmatic. Okay, so these okay, are that three, is dogmatic. Different, three different um, uh, perspectives, as it were, on that's there's John frame for you. There we go. Three different perspectives on, on a type of dogmatic theology. Now what we okay. want to, what we want to distinguish this from, mm-hmm. and this is where it gets really interesting, right? Is the pre dogmatic and apologetic functions of natural theology in mm-hmm. the sense that we were just talking about. Yeah. So not the natural knowledge of God, but now we're getting into, okay, these arguments we're talking about that we can make, whether they're inferences based on creation, whether they're syllogistic arguments and reasoning. Now, can we use these in an apologetic function or even a pre-dogmatic function, meaning, oh, the reason I believe that God exists is because of the teleological argument or some right. such. Right, right. Okay, so did we did we cover all three? So in dogmatic... Uh, natural theology and using it that way. You, there's three perspectives on that. Um, sure. Yeah. Did we go over all three? Yes. So the the okay. first was um, on the basis of, of the natural knowledge of God as found in general okay. revelation or creation. Yep. yep. And then the second was uh, things that we say are true about God based on human reasoning, even as we yes. infer these things from even from scripture, right? Yeah. Uh, so these things are corroborating uh, in our reasoning what we see in scripture or biblical worldview. And then and then the third is what you mentioned, which is more clearly explicating these things and articulating these things. And 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 these these ideas that we derive from human reasoning, from natural theology in that sense, come to corroborate what we knew to be true about God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. I wonder if there's like, it seems like we're hitting on uh, uh, you, you, the empirical arguments, the the rational arguments, and then the the natural arguments, uh, the the natural knowledge. It's all kind of natural knowledge. I'm trying to I'm trying to perspectival it. Perspectival. So, so the way I'm the way that I'm framing it, I would not put uh, rational, empirical, and what was the third one you said? Well, uh, just like natural or. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't classify those as the what I'm calling the natural knowledge of God, right? So the natural knowledge of God is simply like you you wake up and believe in God, sort of thing, right? <laughs> Versus 
you know, going through the cosmological argument or something to that effect. Yeah, okay. those, are, those are distinct. So Suddeth calls it uh, alpha and beta. Alpha is your natural knowledge. Beta are all the things that we want to talk about, right? Which are yeah. the inferences, the arguments, and that sort of thing. Okay. So I, I got to get clear on this because I, I, I think I missed it. Um, there's in, in dogmatic, uh, mm-hmm. is dogmatic in, are all three perspectives of dogmatic informed by scripture or are, is one of those or more than one of those solely informed by the natural, I woke up this morning and believe in God knowledge of God. Yeah. I don't think that they have to be explicitly informed by scripture, right? It can be based on natural. Yeah. Just the natural knowledge of God or the natural order, these sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. These are all, and I probably shouldn't have used the term perspective. That's something I'd have to think through a lot more. I should be using the term function as Suddeth does, but, uh, you, you have, um, uh, you have these different subcategories underneath that category of natural theology beta. That's yes. that's where all these others are. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, so, so we've got that in hand. Um, and then there's the apologetic uh, use of these. So, so those, those uses would be for someone who is not suppressing the truth or by the grace of God, right? We always want to say that, or, or is that, for everyone everyone can use right this is the contentious point right this is where the vantillians and the bartians and others well i think bart would probably get off even before here Mm -hmm. but um by the way if you ever use bart in the title of a paper or a book or something like that bart functions as clickbait in the academic world Um, i know it i I wish it were so but I, I gave a paper in San Diego on Van Til and Bart, and hmm. I filled the room with Bartians, and they were asking me these questions. And I, <laughs> I'm not a scholar in Bart, so I, yeah. I did not really know the answers. But well, and and uh, they would all disagree amongst themselves. Like they yeah. might say that about Vantillians, but they go they go pretty hard. I, yeah. I've experienced that as well. Yeah, yeah. Bart Carl Bart is often. Uh, incorporated into the so-called reformed world simply in virtue of the fact that he rejected natural theology. I think that's a really wrong, a really wrong reading and a bad taxonomy, but anyway, moving on. Um, So, so this is the point of contention is can we use natural theology beta that is um, inferential or, you know, these formalized syllogisms and this sort of thing. Can we use that for a pre-dogmatic knowledge of God. In other words, this is the basis upon which I believe God exists, period. Mm-hmm. And or can we use it in apologetic discussion with the unbeliever for anyone to yeah. answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so let's let's go. Do you, you got to answer that? What do you think? You're putting, <laughs> putting, your, putting your neck out there. Yeah. So I would object. So I would I would affirm 100 percent the use of natural theology in the sense of the natural knowledge of God. I mean, I think that just is Vantillianism. Um, And I would also affirm, though, and most Vantillians, well, I shouldn't say that. There are many Vantillians who probably would get off the bus right here, um, especially in terms of those doing apologetics on the Internet today. Um, I, I think that they would completely shun the use of natural theology in the sense that I've discussed it as dogmatic. 
Um, but I don't see why you would do that. I, I don't I don't actually know that anyone can do this in principle, because when we're speaking of God, even upon the basis of Scripture, we're doing philosophy. Uh, we're mm-hmm. we're drawing inferences. We're making these logical connections and whatnot. It's not like our theology is so pure that we just open the Bible and read it and we have this theology. Right. Uh, there are, there's thinking that's going on. Right. And yeah. and. We're doing so with regard to the natural world as well. And so there's certainly natural theology happening uh, as being used in a dogmatic sense. Now, I, you know, I believe I, I can go through different sound forms of a cosmological argument, a teleological argument, an ontological argument. I can look at those and say, yes, this is helpful. I think that in terms of reasoning, I can know this attribute about God or this thing about God uh, in terms of this syllogistic proof. And it corroborates what I believe upon the basis of my natural knowledge of God and what scripture itself says about God. Right. And so I would full on affirm that use of natural theology where I object. I object to the pre-dogmatic use of natural theology as well as the apologetic use of Mm -hmm. natural theology Unless I think that we can offer for the unbeliever uh, a full orbed scheme of the Christian worldview that incorporates the dogmatic use of natural theology as a persuasive element of our apologetic. So the unbeliever looks and sees this whole picture and goes, wow, this person doesn't just believe in God on the basis of Scripture, although they do, and that's their basis. But this pe- this person believes in God because all of this person's reasoning through these different proofs and arguments and things like that match up with what he already affirms in yeah. Scripture, right? Yeah. We can use it that way. I think we can also use it as a wrench just to toss into the unbelieving yeah. worldview. So, for example, um, an agnostic, right? who believes that God is a necessary being as a concept, well, mm-hmm. that's going to run into problems because then you're going to employ Plantinga's version of the ontological argument and show, look, if you believe that a necessary being possibly exists, you cannot be an agnostic. You, you're right. going to have to be a hard atheist, right? And argue yeah. against God in some form or fashion. So yeah. that's the way that I, I view that. Okay. That's a great wrench. I love that one. Yeah. Cause if you want to say that he is a necessary being and he's possible in some world, then he's necessary in every world, including this world. So you have to show a contradiction and yeah, that's great. Uh, I like that. I love, I've heard you say the wrench thing and it's, it's in my head all the time. Cause I think that's original to you. At least I heard it from you first. Uh, the world of, I mean, and I am a mechanic too. I've built okay. a number of cars. I'm working on one right now, but you know, if you throw a wrench into something, it, it will, it can mess up the engine. I think that's where it comes from. But. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I love that. Uh, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to give a, I wanted to give something that I use and I'm totally open to you being like, dude, don't use this anymore. This is not good. But it's, it's an idea that I thought of while watching planet earth. Um, and I use it with my students on, on college campuses all the time. And I try to do it in a Vantillian way. It's, it's my, in my head, it's like Vantillian natural theology. Um, but, but to show that they do know God uh, and so please like critique me here, but I call it tree evangelism. I say, um, you know, people are like, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in God or anything like that. And I'll, I'll, I'll point out to a tree and I'll go, Hey, look at this tree, man. Look at, if you cut it, it's going to, it's bark grows back. It's roots. Most of these trees, their roots go down as, as high, uh, as low as their, as they go up as a counterbalance. They use uh, photosynthesis in their leaves to convert 
you know, photons from the sun into energy, water. There's this chain of molecules, all this stuff. Isn't that, isn't that like brilliant? They go, yeah. And you're like, this, this tree is crafty. It even tricks animals into eating its fruit and putting manure in a, in a place so close to it that it has similar soil, but not so close to it that it's a comp, uh, competition. Isn't that brilliant? And they're like, yeah, you go, yeah, but it's a stupid tree. Like you don't play chess with a tree. You're saying that there's brilliance here. But I think intuitively or, or tacitly, you're affirming the brilliance of the creator who made that tree. Mm-hmm. And this is what this is what Psalms talks about. So the um I said 19, Psalm 19, the, the mm-hmm. creation the justifies, right? The glory of God, the earth. Yeah, there is no speech nor other words who are not heard. It's yeah. it's all day, night and day, it's pouring forth knowledge. Night to night reveals knowledge. That's right. And and so I think what's going on here is creation is testifying to you and you recognize that and saying that's brilliant. And it comes out when you watch planet Earth. Every time you're saying, wow, isn't that amazing? Every All these little intricate things that these animals do, isn't that brilliant? It's like, yeah, yeah but it's a dumb monkey, dude. You cannot play chess with a monkey. <laughs> like there's brilliance there from the designer. And I think that you are showing that. And that's that's my way of trying to, trying to get that, that beach ball up from the mm-hmm. water that I think they're suppressing. What is that? Is that a proper use of natural theology in a Vantillian way? What do you think? Well, I think that we can go to one of the most you know stringent uses of Vantillian apologetics, as found in Greg Bonson, for example. And a lot of people miss this. Yeah. But in the beginning of his famous debate with Gordon Stein, nineteen eighty-five, I believe, hmm. he lists evidences hmm. for the existence of God and the truth of the Christian worldview, and people tend to just overlook that. But he says it at the very get-go. Throughout the debate, I I think that um, Stein asks him something about, you know, why do you personally believe or something? And and Bonson says something to the effect of, well, God loves me. Yeah, he saved me. Yeah, (laughs) He saved me. That's right. That's right. Uh, But at the very beginning, he's talking about the persuasion of the seas and the stars (laughs) of the skies and these sorts of things. Absolutely. A presuppositionalist doesn't deny that there's evidence for the existence of God. A presuppositionalist says that everything is existence for the uh, is is evidence for the existence of God. I remember one time I was debating with uh, Bonson Burner, Dawson Beathrick, who's an Mm. objectivist, and uh, he's gone through and criticized presuppositionalists throughout the years. And maybe you'll get some hits off me mentioning his (laughs) name right now. Uh, I haven't spoken with him in years, but one time he challenged me. He said, so you think that uh, my unbelief and, you know, that I am evidence for the existence of God. And I challenge you to post that on your website or whatever. So I just copied it and posted Mm -hmm. it on my website. (laughs) (laughs) For the existence of God. Right. Um, No, I think that what you present there, I don't, I, I don't think that that's out of accord with a Christian okay. worldview or understanding, right? Or a transcendental approach. You might even argue uh, in terms of an operative feature of the world, um, <laughs> if you want to make that an explicitly transcendental argument, right? Yeah. Because these things keep happening with these trees and we suppose that they're going to happen in yeah. future instances. And, you know, there are these law-like realities at play, yeah. even in something like the tree. You're not just speaking of that one tree. You're speaking of many trees, right? I mean, yeah. even in our communicating about this story that you tell of this tree, I'm understanding, oh yeah, that's right. That's what trees do in general, mm-hmm. right? I, yeah. I'm not going, well, that's weird. I've never heard of a tree doing that. Or what's this tree you speak of? Right. 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 Uh, I I understand what that is, because this is a world that was created 
by God. And, and he's a God of order. He's a God of regularity. And he established those things in his creation itself. And even that speaks of the reality and the goodness of our creator. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, so if I'm not mistaken, you're bringing up the, the problem of induction there for the non-believer and then the, the Christian answer to it. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I'm alluding to it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's actually, would you say that, 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 that's what this book is about? Is it, I know it's about, it's about laws. Um, but is this this is your Christian answer to the problem of induction, right? Right. In a, in essence, that's what that is. I, I don't believe that we have a problem of induction in the yeah. Christian worldview, and I think that once you deny the Christian worldview, you do wind up with a lot of problems, even going into induction. And induction, inductive reasoning, uh, runs through everything that yeah. we do. I mean, everything. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found this. I, I wrote a paper, uh, which, you know, but uh, I wrote a paper on inference to the best explanation. And I wrote it for one of my professors here who always tried to disabuse me of my Vantillianism. So I figured, well, you're a cumulative case guy. You like inference to the best explanation. I'm going to try and use a transcendental argument to mess with you. Uh, and if, if nothing else, then you have to read a bunch of Vantill quotes. That's uh, right. And, and, and in researching inference to the best explanation, uh, we use this all the time. I, I wasn't even right. aware how much you use it when you look in the fridge for the last piece of pizza and you infer, oh, my kid must have eaten it instead of an alien came through because that's not the best explanation. What I'm using my reason. It's, it's in a form of inductive reasoning. That's right. We do this all the time. And yet, if if you don't believe in God, a, a creator, sustainer who's exercising providential control over the world and, and told you so, then that's kind of blind faith. You're You're kind of Every step you make on the concrete, you're assuming it's not going to turn into jello or pudding or something like that. That's, that's blind faith. Well, that's right. why, help me help me understand how you can account for that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was Hume or someone else who, you know, writes of hearing a voice in the dark and, you know, you presume that it's from a person and right, <laughs> these right. these sorts of beliefs like like you're talking about IBE and abductive reasoning and induction. There are debates about how those relate, but they're at least cousins. And I right, think right. that the issue at the end of the day is still the same. Now, there is a fascinating argument that I've uh, that I've heard, but I, I have not dug into this yet, that there's mm-hmm. actually a problem of deductive reasoning along the lines of something very similar to the the problem of induction. I have not wow. gotten into that yet. Uh, the problem of induction, I think, gives us enough with regard even to yeah. a strong deductive proof because the premises are still inductively derived unless they're strictly a priori. Yeah. Um, so, That's uh, interesting. yeah, that gets us into that. So, but yeah, yeah. you'll notice that in, in my book, um, my book is not strictly speaking an overarching transcendental argument, but right. I do try to put the tools out there and I try to put the content out there for anyone who might want to pick it up and use it to that end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do, I try to be modest in that book and you may even notice I take some shots at guys like Bonson and Van Til uh, mm-hmm. and others for not having developed this argument as much as they probably could have. Yeah. And, and as much as um, folks on the internet think that they, they did. Right. And right. Well, that's here. yeah, yeah. That's, that's another point that I wanted to bring up about transcendental arguments. The reasoning can be really easy. You, I think you can explain Aristotle's TA pretty easily to people once you get past the terminology. And if depends on if you're using law of contradiction or non-contradiction today, they changed it. Right. But whatever, as soon as you get clear on that, um, but it's it's got deep uh, implications as well. It's, it, you can speak about it for uh, three minutes or you can speak about it for three days and have a whole symposium on it. Uh, I think a similar thing with the transcendental argument. And usually 
what, what I've heard uh, when I first got into it was it hasn't been formalized. It hasn't been talked about enough in philosophy. Now what I'm hearing is a, a little bit is, oh, it's it's so formalized. It's it's uh, so sad that God had to hide in all this analytic <laughs> philosophy, right? Um, so what, what do you think about, about the, the can we make a brief transcendental argument uh, that's easy enough for like a college kid to understand? Yeah. Or, or maybe your own child to understand. This is one of the reasons that I do believe this is a very strongly biblical method, because mm. what you just said there perfectly echoes the gospel, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's simple enough that a five-year-old can understand it, mm. and yet profound enough that it, it will busy you for 50 years yeah. to try to understand this gospel. And at the end of the day, in many senses, it's com- incomprehensible to us, right? Mm-hmm. These are the things into which angels long to look. I mean, even personally applying the gospel, right? I mean, how many times have we come to that point where we're we're struggling to apply it personally? And then when we do, by the grace of God, through his Holy Spirit, it's just it light bulbs come on everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is deeply profound. The truth of the gospel is that God would send his son, Jesus, to live this perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins in our place, to be raised again, uh, to ascend into heaven. And he's coming again. And, yeah. uh, you know, but that's still easy enough for a five year old to understand. Uh, and and much more besides, by the way, we need to catechize our children. But that's, that's a whole right. other that's right. a whole other topic. But yeah. um that's one of the reasons that I that I do believe this is a biblical method and that uh, and that it's a useful method, because, yes. So Bonson, for example, would say, well, you don't have to get into all these things that I get into. You can talk about human dignity, for example. You know, why do you bury your loved ones and have mm-hmm. this ceremony or this service for them? Uh, that presupposes this Christian understanding of the world and that sort of thing. That's not strictly speaking an epistemological uh, argument, although, I, I mean, it can overlap. But yeah. But I, I think even there, Bonson may be a little bit unhelpful because you can put this very point blank, like some apologists on the internet have done. Like, look, you believe in God or you affirm foolishness. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, you become futile in your thinking, in your reasoning. One of the simplest applications of this is if you have God, you've got morality. If you deny him, you don't. Yeah. Right. And this is very practical and easy for people to pick up on. For for some reason, I think that the moral argument in classical apologetics and the moral perspective on the transcendental argument are some of the easiest arguments to pick up on because ethics, especially right now. Mm. And by oh, the way, yeah. we, we need to be doing this. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot. Right. What do they say? Early and often. That's uh, right. we, we need to be doing this doing this now. And I will confess to you right now that I'm guilty of not having done this the way that I should be right now. Yeah. There are so many moral claims being thrown left and right right now. Yeah. And most of the people making them have zero basis upon which to make them. Yeah. Right. In our world right now, in our society right now. And so it's very easy, especially on a personal level to say, hey, you know, that thing you judged that other person for you were just doing that last week. You know, it's like, so what are you judging them by? Are you judging them by yourself or by society? Oh, no, it's what society says is right. Okay, so these social reformers were wrong. You know, you don't want to say that. Right. Um, How does one society judge another in these sorts of things? Uh, You know, what what does creation offer us? Of course, they're not going to call it creation, but what is the... um, 
the natural order, the natural realm tell us about morality. Sure, it is the case that it is, it exists, it's there, but that's a further inference to say on the on the basis of things existing, there's another inference we have to make of a different kind mm-hmm. to say, oh, this is morally right or morally wrong. You know, in Christianity, we don't have this problem mm-hmm. because God says, I am that I am, and God, his law is him, right? It's an mm. expression of a manifestation of who he is and what he requires of us. We know moral right and moral wrong. You know, this, even though I'm going a little bit in depth on this, you can offer this in a very simple way, right? Yeah. To someone. Um, and it, for, also, for, we have to real quickly yeah, yeah. Uh, piggybacking off that. We also, you know, we're called to give an answer to anyone who asks us, anyone who yeah. asks us. Yeah. And that command is for all believers. Yep. So I like to sum it up like this. Yeah, let's have an answer for the ivory tower intellectual. Mm-hmm. But most of the people we encounter are not going to be ivory tower intellectuals. They're, yeah. You know, it's the ditch digger or whatever. Yeah. We need to be able to do apologetics with both of them. And I don't think we change the methodology. We just apply it differently to the people. Yeah, yeah. man, that's great. I, if, if you didn't catch it, uh, you, you could hear why Chris uh, likes David Hume so much. He talked about the is-ought distinction. Just because something is doesn't mean it ought to be that way, right? That's a great one to use with people, uh, especially about cultural relativism. Like, yeah, so the culture says it. Does that mean it's ought? They they believed in slavery, right? So there, there's one aspect. Uh, what, I've, what I've had trouble doing uh, sometimes is exactly what you said at the end there was so good that we we need to be able to uh, give an answer to anyone. I mean, the ivory tower intellectuals, I, not everyone listening here will be able to do that or will be able to study as much as you or I are able to study or people who study more than us to give those answers. But yeah, you need to give a reason for the hope that is in you. For me, as I've been studying more uh, even as you were talking about the moral argument, I'm thinking, you know, sharing streets in my head and I'm thinking about um, uh, uh, evaluative uh, realists and uh, non-realists and all this stuff's going in my head. And sometimes that gets in my way when I'm talking with college students, right? Because I'm like, they're like, well, you know, is there another, when they ask me, is there another way to think about this besides yours? I'm like, well, yeah, there's a billion, dude. And I've, I just read one last week, but how do I break this down for you without talking about evaluative realism, you know? Yeah. 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 And that's one of the things, you know, if you are, if you're the person listening right now and you say, I don't understand this stuff, it's way over my head. I don't know these terms. Right. That's fine. And there's not really any reason that you should. So if you're in an apologetic discussion with someone and they use this term, just ask them what they mean by it. Mm. By the way, that got Socrates killed. (laughs) around asking people, you know, people would say, yeah, this is simple. This is plain. This is why I believe it. And Socrates would say, but why, you know, Mm. and you'll find that after two or three questions, most people don't know why they believe what they believe. So true. But, you know, ask people what they mean by these terms. And it it usually breaks down to something simple. Terms can be helpful in an academic setting. They're shorthand for deeper concepts that are more difficult to describe. Right. But even terms lead to problems in communication and these uh, sorts of things. Another thing that we do, though, I think from the other end, if we have studied the terminology and we do uh, understand, have some grasp of philosophy and theology and these sorts of things, what we often do, I was talking to to Eli Ayala about this the other day. Um, we often assume too much of our interlocutor or yeah. opponent. And I don't mean that to denigrate uh, those folks. But what I mean is 
will hear them raise some objection and it can be very simple or basic and they just want a direct answer. And our minds shoot off to some difficulty that we have trouble <laughs> thinking through. And we, so we actually start giving them this ammo yeah. <laughs> it, it, in which case we're actually hurting our own case mm-hmm. and we're confusing them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we need to be very careful to listen to to what's being said and respond in in that way so that's a great point i've uh i want to not sometimes i'll know where someone's going Uh, this this happens uh yeah just every day like it happens in the jujitsu gym it happens wherever i'm at and we'll be talking just because it naturally comes up i'm a theology student i work for a ministry they ask me about what i'm writing or something and it comes up and i know that their position they're actually on a lay level, they're affirming this. And I know, and so sometimes uh, I want to just hide, I, I know what you should be saying and you're not saying it. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm not going to let you say that. But then I realize, you know, I, I should, I should help them, give them the, I've studied this, give them the answer that they're actually looking for. Hey, uh, someone who, who believes what you believe, it's a philosopher. So they says that they say this and they go, Oh yeah, that's, that's good. And then if I can argue against that, I've shown them, yeah. You know, I'm not hiding something from you. I don't want to hide. I want you to see exactly what the arguments are. And I want to help you reason through them. And if you do affirm this, you're going to have to bite this bullet over here. And, right. you know, I don't know all of it, but I can help you think through this and and show you why I don't believe that. Because I have looked at this argument. Of course, uh, the best way to do this, I think, is to to lead people with questions. Yeah. But... It's very difficult in our day and age, and it's it's almost impossible online. You know, if you try mm-hmm. that on Twitter after the third question, they're going to get upset with you, right? Yeah. Simply because you're asking questions. Mm-hmm. But if you have a personal relationship with someone, you know, you're able to do that sort of thing. I think it's funny that you talked about uh, at the gym doing jujitsu or whatever, and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you didn't miss it, but there's a, a big metaphor there or, or whatever, right? An, an analogy to jujitsu yeah. with knowing yeah. where somebody's going to go as well. Yeah, and, totally. uh, right. Because there yeah. are only so many options with this or that thing. And uh, someone with more experience understands which way they're going to go. Yeah. yeah. But no, and, and that comes over time with apologetics, as you know, right. Mm-hmm. We develop mm-hmm. this copiousness or whatever, but uh, wisdom comes from the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, understanding. And so just being well acquainted with scripture uh, is the most important aspect of yeah. apologetic engagement. Yeah, that's that's so good, man. That's such a good word. Uh, also, uh, another thing that there's there's two more things I wanted to touch on with you because they already kind of came up. One was uh, without saying this, you said you know, by what standard? And that's a, a presuppositional trope today. By what standard? By what standard? And it's a trope. It's a cliche because it because it's true, because it's good, because it's it's something that is very helpful. I think for us today, we need to we need to dress it up more. You keep that in your head and have that going what, by what standard, but dress it up. Hey, what what do you mean by that? How did you come to to affirm that? What's like what what standard of uh, morality are you using instead of by what standard? Right. It's. <laughs> Keep that. It's it's similar to repentance, I think, uh, depending on wh- where you're at. Up up here, if you just yell repent at someone, they're gonna be like, dude, what are you talking about? But if you're like, hey, you need to you need to change yourself, your your mind about your autonomy, about your relation to God, you need to change your mind about that, dude. You need to change your mind about your self-sufficiency and your relation to God. And it's it's using the same thing, just not using that word. I, I think that's an important one for us because 
as it's become popular online, it's by what standard. And then people just reject all of the, the precept because of that. Oh, they, all they say is by what standard. And then if they do say that, you have to say by what standard, because that's yeah. how you troll somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not necessarily, the other one is how do you know, of course. Yeah. But yeah. That's not necessarily, um, uh, well, it's it's certainly not a bad question. We already said that, but what right. I was get at is that's not necessarily even a Christian presuppositional argument, right? Right. Um, it is funny. I was reading a, an interview with William Lane Craig yesterday, and he actually says it right in the middle of the interview. He uh, says, "Well, by what standard?" And I said, nice. "Yes, <laughs> let's go." <laughs> but um, but we, we have to understand that there's a a positive case to be made for the Christian worldview. Yeah. We're not merely trying to beat the unbeliever over the head, right? Mm-hmm. We're also trying to present a, a full orbed positive thing to these folks, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Christianity is rich. And so we don't have to rely upon a cliche or, or a quick retort or that sort of thing. We certainly have those yeah. and there's a place for that. There's no doubt about that. And it's person relative. Yeah. By what standard? Well, <laughs> by the standard of the Bible and the methodology, apologetics are person relative. They're not methodologically relative. Yeah, they're yeah. person relative. And by the standard of uh, George Mavrodi's, right? Like he, uh, <laughs> the whole person relative thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You know, you're, you're going to interact with different people in a different way. And that may, that argument, you know, when you ask someone by what standard, that is going to get them thinking. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I've never thought of that. You know, that's yeah. that's a good thing. We want that. Yeah. But I understand. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and and that's it's good philosophy as well. But you you brought up a, another point. Um, yeah, Proverbs talks about this. A, a man's heart is like maybe it's a king's heart, but man's heart is like deep waters, and a a man of understanding maybe it's a king's heart. King's heart is like deep waters, but a man of understanding will search it out. And I think that that speaks to the person relativity. You know, maybe this person doesn't need to go as let, let the conversation lead where it goes. Let the Holy Spirit lead you, you know, be in tune with that and say like, Lord, I don't just want to destroy this person. Uh, I want, I want them to know you, you know, I, you, you did this for me. Uh, you use people to help me stop suppressing the truth and to spark me up to new life. Use me to do that to someone else. Yeah. I, I do want to argue with people. Like I do want to do that. Sometimes we get into that. Well, you can't argue someone in the kingdom. Well, you know, God uses secondary means like arguments to bring people to the kingdom. He's predestined that to happen. So let's go, let's go argue. Let's not be jerks. Right. And let's, let's be sound reasoners as well too. Let's not use crap arguments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our argument is not, you know, we speak of argument in terms of, you know, something that's immoral or unethical. Yeah, right, all right. Not. We're talking about arguments. We're talking about reasoning. We're thinking, talking about thinking through things. We're even talking about persuasion. Yeah. Contrary to what some online presuppositionalists would say, the scriptures yeah. are very plain that we we are trying to persuade people yeah. of the truth of the gospel. We are. Um, sorry. And that does not undermine, I'm not sorry, but that does not undermine the sovereignty of God in the least bit. The, the rationale, the reason for a person believing, uh, comes through the proclamation of the gospel and the defense of that gospel, both of which are prescribed by scripture. The cause of a person coming to faith and understanding is through the spirit of God. That's absolutely true, but we affirm both. We don't side with one or the other, or we wind up with a really bad theology and a poor apologetic. I love that. That's so helpful. I think I first heard that from from James Anderson in one of his apologetics courses, which is talking about the 
he's probably talking about Gordon Clark and Van Til controversy. But yeah, the cause of my faith is the Holy Spirit. He caused me to believe. And I'm a theological determinist. I think that works fine. But he, he didn't leave me without reasons. I have plenty of reasons. It's every I'm sitting in a chair right now. We can look at that as a reason, right? And I think that that is what the transcendental method is so helpful in doing. Let's just grab something of human experience and show how that makes sense within the Christian worldview, how, how that you know, presupposes God's existence and sustaining of the universe. Um, and let's do that. Like this, we have all this human experience to, to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wonder if you can totally say no to this, but it, it brings up, you know, Stroud's critique. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you able, are you are you cool going in just a little bit on that or, or should we just get yeah, that? Yeah, if I can remember how I respond to it. <laughs> yeah, God, I'm the same way. So, so for the listeners, I've talked about Barry Stroud a little bit. We've had James Anderson on, we talked about it a little bit, but um I, I just kind of brought it up for myself when I said it makes sense. So, so uh, Barry Stroud is a, a philosopher, and he's responding to non-Christian philosophers, just anyone who uses transcendental arguments. And he says, well, I'll grant you the conclusion of a transcendental argument, but I'm going to qualify it and say, that's just what you have to believe. So, the argument shows you what you have to believe, but not what is true about reality. And and this is kind of using Kant against Kant. Kant has this transcendental idealism. We can't know the thing in itself. And so he, he uses Kant against Kant in these transcendental arguments and says, okay, so so you have to think that God exists. It makes sense. The world makes sense, you know, if you're looking at it, that there is a God. But th- that's a belief. It's not world-directed. It's not you, – you haven't solved any metaphysical question. You've just talked about a belief. So, yeah, how, how might one go about responding to that? All right, so here we go. Uh, mm-hmm. I, first of all, I meant to mention Barry Stroud earlier when I was alluding to when I was name dropping with all the different philosophers <laughs> talk yeah. about transcendental arguments in philosophical literature, in journal articles, in books, and these sorts yeah. of things. Barry he's the, Stroud, boogie, he's the boogeyman one, of those. Sure, sure, but he's still taking transcendental arguments seriously, academically right. speaking, in that regard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one point I want to make. Another point is that there is a distinction to be made between transcendental arguments as used in the secular realm and transcendental arguments or the transcendental argument, whatever that might be, right. in the Christian realm and in the Vantillian sense, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you get like a P.F. Strawson type uh, world-oriented uh, transcendental argument or, or some such. That's very, very different. That's a local transcendental argument that's intended to prove one very small thing yeah. versus what we get within the Vantillian scheme, which I'll get to in just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, moreover, so for example, and I think this this really answers the question that I dreaded answering on this podcast that you haven't asked. So now I'm just going to raise it and answer yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is this, is the transcendental argument in a Vantillian <laughs> sense an instance of natural theology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would say if it is, then it would be at least a dogmatic use of natural theology and not a pre-dogmatic or an apologetic use per se, which really bothers me. I don't know about that. So, um, but the reason I say this, Tyler McNabb brings up transcendental argument in his book and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to create this transcendental argument for God. This is an instance of natural theology, but I think that the transcendental argument for God that he uses is an instance of natural theology. I don't think that it is the Vantillian understanding of a transcendental argument, which argues indirectly versus directly, right? So a direct proof for the existence of God is arguing from premise, premise, conclusion, whatever. Whereas a transcendental argument is saying what we said earlier, you know, okay, you affirm Y. Well, did you know that X is the necessary precondition of Y? But here's the difference. In Christianity, 
we believe upon the basis of the word of God. Mm. This is the historic, traditional, reformed understanding of these things. We take the word of God as our ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. If you could prove the word of God in virtue of an authority that's higher than the word of God, then the word of God is no longer the ultimate authority by definition. right? Right. And so we base our faith in the scriptures. We base our faith upon God. That's not fideistic because we then reason out from that. And what we want to say on the basis of scripture is, if you deny that these things are the case, if you deny the very word of God, you're a fool in the mm. biblical sense. Yeah. You, res- you, you end up in futility of thought. Now, we want to illustrate that for you or demonstrate that through the philosophical reasoning provided for us in a transcendental scheme. Okay, so that's the theological and the philosophical use of the transcendental argument in a Vantillian scheme, but notice that it differs from, say, Strawson, because it's based upon the frank acceptance of authority. That's the first difference. Secondly, it's based upon a concrete understanding of things. It's not just some general uh, proof. It's based upon Christianity and the Bible. Okay, Mm -hmm. and then the third thing is that it is, it's talking about a whole worldview. We're not just talking about, you know, induction. We're not just talking about logic. We're not just talking about morality or whatever. We're talking about an entire worldview that we say is the precondition of intelligible experience. Now, how does this apply to Stroud? Stroud's not talking about the transcendental argument in that sense. Stroud is attacking particular localized forms of transcendental arguments, which could matter in the grand scheme of things with regard to answering Stroud, Mm -hmm. because within Christianity, we're never talking about the Christian worldview apart from the metaphysical objective reality of these things. Right. And so that's already presupposed in the worldview that we're saying that you have to affirm or else you wind up in foolishness and global skepticism or self-defeating subjectivism, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the first way of answering Stroud's critique. Another way of answering Stroud's critique is simply to appeal to Van Til and Bonson. Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson were both aware of this form of critique. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps in Van Til's case, I don't know, we'd have to look up the dates, right? Perhaps in Van Til's case, even prior to Stroud's objection. Hmm. Okay, and so what I'm saying here is they affirm the usefulness anyway of both the ontological or or the world oriented versions of TAG, as it it later came to be called, and the epistemological, merely epistemological versions of it. Right. Hmm. So in other words, I I think that it is the case that we could argue that transcendental argument does prove the truth or the objective reality of the Christian worldview, of the existence of God, of whatever Christian tenet we're arguing for. Okay, I do think that's the case. I think that case can be made. But we're also saying for sure that you must believe these things are the case in order to make reasoning or whatever else intelligible, right? Human experience intelligible. And so I think, and Bonson says this explicitly in one of his lectures, we have enough. If you get to that point, you're doing pretty good. Right? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> if right. you get to the point where you're saying, well, you haven't, the, the unbeliever says to you, well, you haven't proven that Christianity is true. You haven't proved that God actually exists. All you've proven 
is that I must believe in God and I must believe that Christianity is true or else I can't do anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rationally speaking, it's like right. you might want to go home and think about that one a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bob and so speaking to the microphone, right. Yeah. So from a practical standpoint on a street level with apologetics, you've answered the criticism in that regard. In other words, Stroud works in the Academy. It's a wonderful thing to explore and especially to look at the strength of the transcendental method and presuppositional apologetics, because honestly, classical apologetics, we never get to this level of, of particularity in critique. I mean, it's just amazing the fine tooth comb we use with Vantillian apologetics, uh, <laughs> supposing that there's some sort of backwater apologetics, whereas classical apologetics, that's where it's at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When does anyone focus this type of critique on them? Even, well, anyway, I'll, I'll move on. But that, that would be another part of the answer is to say, okay, so what? On a practical level, if you have to say, I must believe in Christianity in order to make sense of anything, that's fine. You've given me enough. I think that the stronger version is, is fine. I think that you can then introduce an ontological type argument. Mm-hmm. Um, now, people will argue, well, that means that tag is insufficient and all that. I understand all of that. I'm just saying from a practical standpoint, we could say, how exactly are you saying that you must believe that Christianity uh-huh. is true and yet you're also saying at the same time and in the same respect that you don't know whether or not Christianity is true. That's a yeah. contradiction. Yeah. Okay. Final response is, I think that even in the argument itself from Stroud, when we're looking at inferences and the force of inference, of logical inference, or if we construe that in terms of deontological responsibility or morality or something like that, moral imperative, I think that we can actually uh, reintroduce another, like a second layer transcendental argument that would force us back into the world directed uh, scheme. So I don't know if that makes much sense, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's where Michael Riley leaves us in his dissertation from Westminster. And I think that he's on to something there as well. Yeah, the 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 ethical aspect of 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 yeah, that's good. I, we didn't talk about that when he came on, but I I picked that up from Framed, uh, probably Doctrine of Knowledge of God, and I've been I've been thinking about that a lot. I use that in my IBE uh, paper. The I, I just call it the ethics of inference. I'm sure I probably got that from Frame, but there's between the the premises and the conclusion, there's an ethical ought. Right, mm-hmm. like, like you mentioned, it's like a deontological. You ought to affirm the conclusion if you see that it follows from the premises and that it's you know uh, valid and sound. Or sound includes valid, but if it's a sound argument, you ought to affirm the conclusion. But like, why? Like, why don't you just? Right. Why? Why can't I just suppress that truth? Well, it depends on doxastic volunteerism. Well, whatever, dude. You can try and make yourself. Why not at least try and make yourself not believe it? Well, because you know there's an ethical ought there, right? <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to to remember that. Yeah. Why don't you try and make yourself not believe? Right, right. Like, why, why can't you do that? Yeah, and you know, and then it gets right back to what you said about the moral argument being being so practical. This is what Lewis brings up in Mere Christianity so well. You, dude, you bump into somebody and now you're into an ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just bumped into someone and now it's, should I, should I say sorry? Was it your fault? What's, what's polite to do here? You have to think through like the culture things of politeness, but what's right? What? It sounds like, Lewis, I do? It sounds like Lewis has British issues there. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I love that one. I'm really, really open to that. Uh, I've, I've asked uh, a couple philosophers about that and, uh, 
there hasn't been a ton of work on that, but some people are thinking about some epistemologists are, are thinking about that, which is fun. Uh, I love I, it, man. It's, it's good. I just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something, but I'm just not overly impressed by Stroud's critique. I think it's very interesting, Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that it just brings out how sharp this apologetic method actually is. And, and because it's more, it, because it's a worldview level mm-hmm. argument, uh, it's, it's not what you call them, local, local ones. Local would be like what P.F. Strassen uh, arguing for like personhood, right? It, you're, you're abstracting out one, one piece of furniture from this worldview where we're arguing in a worldview level and saying exactly right. Like you, mm-hmm. even if you have to affirm this, it's ac- it's actually going back to what you affirmed about um, either Anselm or Augustine, uh, faith seeking understanding, right? I believe in order that I may understand. So what even if you're just left with a conceptual transcendental argument that up the belief level, belief directed, you're proving, you're demonstrating, if that's the case, that you have to believe in order to understand. And that's what Christians have been saying for many, many years. I, if I want to believe anything, I have to, I, if I want to understand anything, I have to believe. I have to believe in God. I have to believe in the Christian view of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Man, so just to, to re-clarify one last time, so tag would be a type of natural theology, but if it is, it's the dogmatic type. Yeah, I I don't think that it actually is because I don't, for one thing, it doesn't assume a neutral standpoint from uh, which the unbeliever reasons Yeah, as the other classical proofs might, depending mm-hmm. on how they're used. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's natural theology because it's not, in a pure sense, operating based solely on, on deductive or inductive reasoning or some variety thereof, right? Uh, Transcendental argument, as Van Til would set it forth, is using both induction and deduction uh, because we're talking about a worldview, right? And so we really are talking about uh, two otherwise incommensurate worldviews, Christianity and non-Christianity, whatever manifestation that non-Christian worldview takes on in the particular exchange, right? We really are talking about two distinct worldviews, antithetical worldviews in that sense, rather than here's this logical argument. I mean, think of all the things we've just assumed in that, right? Right, right. Induction, morality, because of the inference that we just talked about, these things are all interconnected, right? We're assuming that this person basically affirms a similar or the same worldview as we do. They're just missing some pieces or parts. That is not at all the Vantillian scheme, right? Not right. at all the Vantillian approach. And so I think in that sense, the transcendental argument as Vantill would present it is not an instance of natural theology. Okay. Uh, so. That's helpful. Yeah. So we're, we're setting, we're setting worldviews against each other. That's really good. And do you do you think that it can be formalized? Like can can tag be formalized, or or if you do formalize it and you take one in one instance of human experience, would that be uh, under the umbrella of tag? Is that a different argument? Yeah, I, I like what you said there because I, that is how I approach this now, mm-hmm. uh, and this moved me closer to James Anderson. Yeah. Uh, even though I think that we do need one overarching scheme and yeah. I keep saying scheme. And I, I mean that in a colloquial sense for sure. those who are listening and thinking about Donald Davison um, <laughs> or AC Grayling or whatever, but no, um, I do think we need that umbrella as you just put it. And yeah. then you've got all of these really cool things yeah. 
underneath that umbrella that you can appeal to and use and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, your use of the transcendental art, you can't talk about everything at once. Right. So your use of the transcendental argument is going to involve some of these more localized type issues. But here again, I mean, even if you just bring up one little thing, all of a sudden you've got all of this in front of you. You've got communication, you've got science, you've got induction, you've got laws of nature, you've got logic, you've got human. I mean, it's all there. And you're you're actually assuming and using all of that at one time. It's yeah. just a matter of what am I going to pull out here um, and use in this particular instance? I think that's really helpful. I think that's a lot of what Van Til was up to was, you know, he's a professor and he's saying it, it's like a meta argument. Here's how we as Christians should do things. And then he, he drops great lines like, should we expect anything else? Should should God expect anything else of us than to present Christianity as we believe it? Of course, we, the apologist should do that. But, you know, as people always say, where where was the argument? Well, you can find a couple instances of it. But I think what he was doing is saying, argue like this. Mm-hmm. Do do this. Now go and do likewise. We follow this, this pattern. And I think that's kind of what we've missed. Uh, not all of us, but some of us have missed. And that's what a lot of us are trying to pick up on. Okay, Van Til, I want to follow that instruction. I think it's biblical. I think it's sound. I think it's good. But now we have to follow in your footsteps and kind of make some of these arguments. And guess what? We have all of reality to use. And so there's a lot of us that need to be doing this stuff. And I think what's helpful that you brought out, I think you can talk more world level, uh, uh, the world level argument, worldview level argument on the popular level with folks. Right, because it's it's more informal. They're not asking to see it in a syllogism, and it's more intuitive. And we're kind of reasoning together. But philosophers are philosophers, and they want to say, "Well, what do you mean by this one? What do you mean?" By-? And so you have to pick out some aspect. And right, right, and, and yeah. you know, you can use. I think that James Anderson's formulations of some aspects of the transcendental argument are very helpful. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Van Til seemed to doubt whether or not the argument could ever be formalized. Yeah. Uh, Greg Bonson you can probably formalize his argument as he presented it uh, in his debate with Gordon Stein. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what did he say? Without God, it's impossible to prove anything or something yeah. to that effect. Right. Yeah. Um, so you can, you can come through with different, there is a, there is a lecture where it's only about 15 minutes long, if I remember correctly, where Bonson does try to formalize, formalize the argument. Uh, one of the interesting things is that people want to accuse the transcendental argument of being logically circular. That's impossible if yeah. there's no formula, you know, if it, if it hasn't yeah. been put into a logical syllogism. Yeah. But sure. um, there have been suggestions made. You know, you've got Don Collette uh, mm-hmm. talking about this with Frame in his Festrift. You've got, um, again, some of the things that James Anderson has presented. Um, there are some who have suggested that we use free logic, uh, different types of logics to try to uh, explain or formalize the transcendental argument. Um, there is um, David. Now, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. I don't know if it's writer or reader. He hmm. is at uh, Erskine and uh, he actually interacted. He went back and forth with Anderson in uh, the um, Philosophia Christi. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. And so uh, he has come up with uh, a modal transcendental argument. Hmm. Uh, there are some modal difficulties and issues once you start trying to yeah. uh, form the argument. Some of the objections that would apply to classical project objections to classical apologetics or natural theology in the pre-dogmatic or apologetic sense, some of those objections would actually wind up applying to the transcendental argument if we're too uh if we're too careful in trying to formalize the argument, I think that's what people worry about. So 
I don't know how much I have an answer to your question, but I do think that you can state an argument without necessarily uh, chisholming it, right? And putting uh, it into these uh, yeah. logical syllogisms. Yeah, uh, that's great. Man, well, this has been good. We we, we covered a ton of stuff here. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, questions that people have. Uh, I would love for you to come back on. We could talk more about this. We could talk more about your book, actually, too, because I, I, I really like it. And for those who don't know, you use a lot of planning in here. And so this isn't just a uh, take it or leave it. We're all Van Til. We can't use plan. No, you use a ton of them, and it's great. And uh, so I would I would definitely recommend the book. Again, it's The World in His Hands, A Christian Account of Scientific Law and its antithetical competitors. And so you've got the antithesis in there as well, which is great. Um, Chris, any, any kind of uh, plugs that you want? Can people find you on Twitter like today? I mean, tomorrow you might be gone, and then next week I'll see you again. Yeah, I'd, I frequently take sometimes rather lengthy breaks from social media. Uh, there are a number of different reasons for that. And my mm-hmm. tweets do self destruct and that's not because i'm ashamed of anything i've said but if i if there's reason for me to be ashamed of something i've said let me know and i will either disagree with you or repent is that yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you can find me normally on twitter at cl bolt um you can find me on some of the alternative uh social media if they're there tomorrow right, yeah, <laughs> at right. CL bolt. not because i affirm everything that everyone on those platforms believes i don't know where that idea ever came from mm-hmm. um i'm just on there preaching the gospel posting bible verses and talking mm-hmm. about philosophy and then uh you can find well actually i'll be doing a podcast well by the time this comes out will have already happened mm-hmm. uh but it's called regenerated radio look that up on youtube i'll be okay. on there i've been on some podcasts with eli ayala and mm-hmm. with uh, covenant baptist uh, what is it called the covenant podcast i believe so those are just some things some places you could check out where we've talked more about these uh different topics yeah well dude thanks so much for coming on this has been huge i love talking about this stuff and i love your perspective um because it is a unique perspective and i I really really appreciate all your thoughts on this this uh conversation is not over uh lord willing we're gonna have this conversation uh, more and more uh with different guests but but with chris as well this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god